So I said to them, I, I love Jaeger and Liveford. Of course I do. Who doesn't? But it's, it's just not the only thing I can do, you know? Just a moment, Paul. Did you hear that? Hear what? Something very familiar. Richard. Giles. Paul. Hi, Gav. It's that tune. I know, I know. I heard it. He's coming, Giles. I said that, didn't I? Just, just listen for a moment. Well, where is he then? Here we are then. Something Who Bunker. The solar system. Christmas-ish. I did it. Paul. Giles. Gaff. Blimey. No, hold on. Wait there. I've got something to say. There was something I had to tell you. Something important. What was it? Oh, I know. A happy Christmas to all of us. Oh. Same to you, Richard. Paul. Giles. Was that it? No. Hang on. There's something else. Incidentally, a happy Christmas to all of you at home. Hello, and welcome to the podcast where we take something old, a Doctor Who story from the original series, compare it with something new, that's one from the new series, and add something borrowed, that sketch, to make Something Who. Yeah, it's Something Who podcast episode 53. I'm Richard, and we're back to discuss a couple of Christmas-themed Doctor Who stories. So first we'll take a look at the first Doctor episode, The Feast of Stephen, which is the standalone seventh part of the epic Daleks master plan from season three and after that we'll chew over the tenth doctor's debut story and the first Christmas special from the new series the Christmas invasion which is in between the first and second series so with me to talk about all things Christmas are graphic designer and Dalek expert Gav hello Merry Christmas (laughs) yeah and, and to you uh, science and astronomy writer Giles. Hello, hello. He doesn't want you to have a Merry Christmas. No, no. Ah, humbug. <laughs> and, and Big Finish author and Missing Episodes podcaster Paul. Joyous Noel. <laughs> Before we get going into the uh, the main part of the business of, uh, of tonight, I wonder, do you think it's possible that between the four of us, we can explain Doctor Who flux to our listeners? <laughs> I just thought as an exercise, you know, you know, maybe in the next two or three minutes, I'll, I'll, I'll kick things off, and when I start to flag a bit, maybe you can throw some uh, additional colour in. You think we need the whole two minutes to um, <laughs> to cover that crystal clear piece of plotting that uh, um, paid off beautifully in the end? There were one or two things I wasn't quite clear about. Mm. So anyway, well, bear with me. So there's some kind of anomaly which is destroying the universe bit by bit that's the flux and also every single member of the human race has a strange dog-like being that's looking after them a protector mm-hmm. uh, which i guess is, is is the main reason why i've had that fondness for terminus since about 1983 <laughs> and 
they come in all of their spaceships, which fortunately exactly surround the Earth. I mean, if there'd been one or two more or one or two fewer, it might have been a problem. But but they just fit in the perfectly congruent way around the Earth and they stop the flux from hitting it. So that's okay. Unfortunately, the Sontarans have nipped in ahead of them. So we have to have a bit of a shenanigans around that. And then, but then they get they get sort of uh, sent away, and sent packing. Now I'm I'm starting to lose it again. Uh, <laughs> maybe one of you can help out. Well, I I did have a a, a big frustrating nitpick. I had two big frustrating nitpicks, which I vented on Twitter, and it turned out both of them had an explanation that I had overlooked. Right. Oh, go on. Apparently they're they they are covered in the plot. So. Try me, because I thought I followed it, which are clearly going to be famous last words. Well, I took issue with the notion that the flux was ripping relentlessly through entire planets, you know, vaporising complete star systems, shredding rock and the molten core and chewing through stars. And then yeah. it came up against this sort of fine wire mesh created by the, uh, the dog spaceships that perfectly encompass yeah. the Earth coincidentally and the flux seemingly sort of just bounced off it and i struggled with that but um apparently according to uh our friend stephen brennan there was a line of dialogue that explains that the dog people's Mm -hmm. ships force fields Mm -hmm. are based on generating matter and that they were precisely generating the requisite amount of matter to feed the flux as the flux tried to feed on the ships. Mm. Hence, the ships were unaffected. And as we know, matter can be neither created nor destroyed. (laughs) So that matter was coming from... Uh, A space tube (laughs) through... uh, from one of the other universes. Ah, there you go. They weren't taking matter from the flux and turning it back on itself as anti-flux. That's what that would make. That would be nice and neat. Mm. Bit of, yeah. Bit of techno box. What reversing the but polarity it, of the neutron? Flow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There you go. We ha- yeah. We ha- so. we had the solution at the very end with the antimatter, didn't we? But mm. I've forgotten now. That was the bit that. There's no use asking me about the early episodes in the series because mm. I can't remember the last one. Where did the antimatter come in? Hmm. <laughs> That's where. Yeah, I don't know. I don't want to. I don't want to go all Mr. Science on people. But... <laughs> Sorry, Gav, Gav, you go and you you had another. Or is it related? The other thing that I foolishly thought was a dangling plot thread, uh, I had mistakenly believed that by the end of the final episode that the universe was left in tatters mm-hmm. and that because uh, we'd seen de- demolished yes. planets and the solar yes. system ruined. Yeah, well, we all thought that. And as someone pointed out to me on Twitter in a line of dialogue I must have missed, the uh, crystalline people, what they called the ravagers? Ra- ravagers, ravagers, the ravagers had actually apparently, and I missed this bit, begun their plan, which was to rewind time oh. and let the universe get exploded over and over again just for a laugh. Ah, and ah. so they'd done their first rewind apparently, and then right. not pressed play again or whatever so the ah. flux then didn't destroy the universe and so in that moment uh, everything was fine well if hmm. that was covered in dialogue it might have been worth lingering on it just for a few seconds 
Well, I mean, if only yeah, uh, the audience could actually hear it, let alone yeah. that it might be a nice moment to triumph, mm. to pay off the six episodes. Because yeah. what I got, and quite a few other people I gather, was that we, we saw the, the mention of their time-rewinding plan and that that was apparently dropped and not referred to again. And that was my like understanding, a, that, a dangling that, that they said they were going to do it to be annoying. Some people mm. were so cynical as to think that the showrunner had <laughs> accidentally come up with a... A possible resolution for his problem and not spotted it himself. Yeah, it would. It, it, cynical, cynical. Other kind people. of people thought yeah. that perhaps yeah. this had been heavily cut down and that some of the, uh, the less congruent mm. aspects were a result of overzealous editing. One of the frustrations mm. from a storytelling point of view was the doctor was virtually a bystander mm. in the solution. All of the all of the elements of solution were fortuitous because the doctor, mm. the thirteenth doctor, a bystander. The Doctor had come across Tech Taeun, who was successfully oh, yeah. executing a plan to annihilate Mother. the universe, which was pretty good going, and she'd done fairly well. And mm. at the same mm. time, the people that Tech Taeun worked for, or operated, or I can't remember, did she run the whole thing? Anyway, they had imprisoned <laughs> the only other people in the universe who had enough godlike power to thwart the plan of the other villain in the story. Which was mm. really lucky. The swarm, having thwarted Tectoon's plan, albeit accidentally, were friends with the only other being in the universe that was more powerful and able to defeat them, who seemingly was time, and they were vaporized or whatever. Mm. And then mm. the doctor went, "Oh, that turned out all right," and she went home. Mm. So division was 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 that just the Ood that was left at the end, or or, or were there others of them? Unclear. Uh, <laughs> it seemed to me that the extraordinarily powerful universe-conquering division was Tectoon and an Ood that turned tail within three seconds of being asked to do so. Mm-hmm. One thing that bothered me about this was a general sense of not understanding of the timeline, the time scales of this, of the Doctor's life not making a lot of sense. We were told that she had immeasurable numbers of lifetimes before yeah. Bill Artmore. And so, although num- no numbers are put upon it, it seems to take her back to... Well, no, it explicitly takes her back to the through the whole of Gallifrey and history and to the beginning. To yeah. the dark times. I, the times of but, chaos. So she... We understand why she has survived. Well, you know, we're, we're led to believe that it is the, she's covered the lifespan of dozens, maybe hundreds, of normal time lords. Hmm. Which would, you know, would, be, make, would be quite interesting. That, that gives the story a sense of scale. But mm-hmm. on the other hand, Tek Taeun, who is just an ordinary time lord, has also lived. Yeah. Somehow managed to survive that entire length of time. Mm. Other characters from her part. So you're led to believe that mm-hmm. if you follow, if you you know, if your brain paints the same picture of this, the scale of this story, mm. that we're talking about the the dark times. The you know, mm. not millennia ago, the mists of time. Well, but we, hmm. then we keep coming into people. We keep bumping into people from the, her mate, the dog chap. Yeah, God, yes. yeah, is still alive, not looking, not even <laughs> got any grey whiskers. He's still <laughs> running around from those. So suddenly the, the, it all gets foreshortened again, and it seems like yesterday. Yeah, yeah, that's very good. So point. that's all rather unsatisfactory. And Joe Martin's knocking about in um, in well, Tewksbury yeah. or wherever it was. So many things don't make sense. All the time lords are dead and gone. I mean, they've been and gone and been and gone. Gallifrey has 
gone to another universe, it's been extinct, then it's come back again, mm. then it's been destroyed physically. Unless, of course, it was still in the other universe when it was destroyed. So all this has been, while all this has been happening, mm. a sliver of Gallifreyan society, the division, has been operating behind the scenes. I mean, I mean, not not so parallel. far as to actually show themselves until now, of course. Mm. It's I mean, the the division concepts, as we had it explained, it, I suddenly thought, oh, it's Foundation, isn't it? He's he's ripping off, he's ripping off the Foundation to some extent. Mm. The idea of them kind of pulling levers behind the scenes. And I didn't have a... It didn't occur to me that thing about Tetsion, but was there... Because they were sort of outside of any universe in this... in their ship or whatever. So I suppose it was mm. possibly forgivable that time might run differently. Yes, there. I suppose that, if that means I don't know, I'm making, time. I'm making, I'm making excuses, possibly, yeah. Yep, that could work. Mm. I, I actually quite... Although I hate, I don't really get anything out of that entire story, but I did quite like. <laughs> although it's incredibly ch- simplistically and childishly presented, them sat there between the two universes, the the old one and the next one. Mm. I somehow quite like that imagery. Yeah, so did I. Completely unscientific. It seems so such a big idea. Sometimes mm. when you swing for a massive idea like that, less is more. Mm. So it, I found myself vaguely intrigued as to. What the implications were? Yeah. Of course, I did think that it would actually pay off, and that we might get to see mm-hmm. somebody might pass into the next universe mm. and uh, create some kind of loop, but uh, mm. that didn't happen. But mm. maybe that's for the future. Yeah, I don't know. The sciencey thing that got to that niggled me was the the whole thing about putting the fleets, the Sontaran master plan. I mean, okay, it was a maybe. Maybe we should just write it off as being a characteristically crap Sontaran. Sontaran wheeze. The entire, but the the idea that they could putting those fleets in the way, having as you said, yeah. seen seen the flux rip through half the known universe, the yeah. idea that that putting a few the fleets of, of spaceships were going to yeah. was going to blitz, you know. And I, I th- unfortunately, I think, yeah, it bothers me when they when they kind of when they kind of swing for something that sounds sounds scientific and then. Massive, you know, get it so massively off. I'd, I'd rather, I'd rather it's just made up. But, but the Ood had turned down the power in the microwave, hadn't it? <laughs> yes, I, I, yeah. I thought that's what happened. So, so, so mm. yeah, it wasn't quite as strong as it had been before. Ah, true. Why didn't he turn it but off? Then why didn't it just? Mm. Well, you know, that would that would have been disappointing, wouldn't mm. it? Be a disappointing conclusion. I've switched it off. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think I prefer yeah. I prefer it was just woo-woo particles or something rather than rather than making up something that sounds sounds sort of superficially plausible. Yes, the the I mass of a, a few spaceships seems just such an improbably pointless mm. effort. When you yeah. when we've seen that the Tardises have the technology to tow planets, mm. and if it had been able to tow a planet into the path of the flux, we've already seen the flux ripping through planets. Mm. So any number of Trifling little chips in its way would just be hmm. mere pinpricks. But then, yes, I forgot that they turned down the uh, settings on the flux. <laughs> that 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 big ship, maybe from uh, that the, the Cybermen were in at the end of the Capaldi era. Maybe that's and that was a big ship. That that might have done something. Hmm. Ah, that was the other thing. The other extremely convenient uh, solution was that the Doctor needed a vessel of infinite capacity into which the flux could be sucked and. It just so happened that she'd recently 
met one in this adventure mm. brought with them by the baddies. So that was another nice, generous piece of luck by the baddies to uh, sort that solution out. <laughs> the, the, the fact that the Flux had to, to go into a vessel of infinite capacity, you sort of thought that was telegraphed by the Doctor's attempt to do it with the, the TARDIS in the first episode, which just failed. And you think, well, surely those ideas are a little bit mutually exclusive. I'd just take that out. I'd not have the failed attempt with the TARDIS. And I'd have put the TARDIS as the successful flux solution at the end. Hmm. It's just occurred to me that that, that entire thing was actually a remix of um, Revolution of the Daleks, wasn't it? Where they suck yeah. at yeah. the... Because I was just thinking, hang on, we've had a spare TARDIS knocking around being used to a soak I told, up. I said at the time she shouldn't have wasted it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I nearly stopped... As I was doing that explanation, I nearly stopped myself because I thought, oh, hang on, I'm not... I'm not talking. I'm talking about the wrong episode. Mm. And then I thought, no, they, we have no, had not. this twice. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Mm. The other thing that occurred to me, which may be, I may be the last person in the universe to uh, notice this, but this division stuff is all. It's season six B, isn't it? it? It's the inter doctor. Well, between Troughton and. If it had been placed there. Mm. Look, <laughs> we could talk about this all night. Mm. We could. We, we all thought, didn't we, when we saw, um, what was the one with the Jadoon? Fugitive of the Jadoon. Fugitive, yeah. That it was suggesting that this mysterious missing doctor came from between Trout and Pertwee because... Had the old TARDIS. Well, that's mm. the... Yeah. Yes. And the fact remains, and has never been explained, that because the Fugitive Doctor's TARDIS is a police box, it's there is no way you can explain satisfactorily her being from before an orphan child, no. and yet we're led. We're, we are being presented with as a fait accompli that she was. Mm. The doctor herself is happy with that explanation. Mm. Nobody seems to have picked up on it. But my point is, I don't believe that they overlooked that. I, I think that they were making it up as they went along. Hasn't uh, Chibnall admitted that that's he just got this idea while his mate was writing *Fugitive* the Jadoon and took the <laughs> took the keyboard away from him. And, and added this extra stuff in and started himself mm. down this path. Oh. I'm sure. I, I just think that's probably what he was thinking in the first drafts. And then got carried away with himself and invented mm. this. I thought it would be more exciting to make it pre-First Doctor. Mm. But had forgotten well, that they'd left a bit of a big clue. Mm. And, and also an insurmountable hurdle to that being possible. Although the only way that we know that this was... Uh, that, that she's pre-Hartnell is because the master told us and the master could have been lying and then when they discussed it in this series she said uh, and did everything the, well, did everything the master say to me was that right? Tectoon said yes but she didn't know what the master told her because well, she wasn't there No. so you know I mean maybe he's just a big liar I noticed that, that she gave a little pause like Alec Guinness in the first Star Wars when <laughs> Luke is asking the same question a good actor right. will always put in a little pause and a, and right. a little shifty eye business, mm. just in case the just in the, case the writer decides back, to rewrite the entire backstory. A good actor who's not in, yes, a good actor who's not entirely confident in what they're being asked to say. It's true from a certain point of view, yeah. is uh, how it will be revisited. Yeah, when Tech Team's a okay. ghost. Uh, I mean, perhaps before we run out of time to talk about the other the, the other things we came here to talk about, we should we should move on. I mean, I, I I I guess I should say that in despite all of that, I actually quite enjoyed 
watching it. I, I, I just wish it felt a little bit more coherent at the end. Yeah, I like think it was, was very watchable, and I think it's primarily because it moves so much faster than what we've had in the last two years. So you don't, you're encouraged to not stop and think about it, and that's pretty much the only. That's the pretty much the only yes. reason it gets away with it. But hmm. but is that a plus or a negative? I can't decide. There were times when I was thinking, I'm quite enjoying this, but I think I wish it would slow down and investigate some of these ideas and some of these characters a bit more. Hmm. I think hmm. a bit more variety in the pacing would work, and a bit more depth. To these ideas and these these situations, these characters would help, but would it? <laughs> did it only work as well as it did for me because it was speeding through? Because mm. it was trying to feel. I mean, it was obviously trying to be Doctor Who the movie style, blockbuster, summer blockbuster style, and that was kind of became explicit in the last episode where they did the Star Wars wipes. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know why they hadn't done them before, and it did. It did start to feel like. Um, Star Wars, a sort of Star Wars fever dream, and I quite like that because I like Star Wars. <laughs> so if we're ever, that's the only thing that I think saved it—the fact that it almost pulled off the epic hmm. feel. Most epics don't make any sense. They're a different, they're a different beast, a different genre. The epic. Hmm. So. Yeah, it felt like a big step up in a in a lot of departments. Like I, I felt like the the characterization, the dialogue was you know was a lot better. Highness still. I've still got a bit of a chip on my shoulder about Chibnall's generic space space buccaneer type characters, and generic space people are you know, tend to be at the dull end of the spectrum. But there were a lot of more interesting characters in there as well to help things along this year. It looked good. Mm. It looked very uh, <laughs> very glossy. If that's the sort of thing that you want out of Doctor Who. <laughs> Well, let's hope he learns from this and his fourth series is... Oh, hang on. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, there's still these specials. Yeah, but he wrote them at the same time. And they're not linked. We're going to go back to the old one-off. Well, yes. Anyway. Okay. Well, thanks for that. I'm feeling... uh, Yeah, much of the same, I guess, is when we started. (laughs) But at least we've had a good tune. No more enlightened. (laughs) Yeah. So moving on, The Feast of Stephen, uh, written by Terry Nation and directed by Douglas Camfield, which drew in 7.9 million viewers, uh, I noted, uh, in uh, 1965. It's a ratings disaster, isn't it? Absolute (laughs) absolute calamity. So yeah, I mean, it it kicks off in in a sort of generic northern location. I mean, there's there's hints of Liverpool in, in the script, although not in the accents other than Peter Purvis when he turns up and uh, and then moves on to Hollywood but anyway I mean what 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 do you, what do you all make of this <laughs> well <laughs> we know what you've got <laughs> the world expert on the face of Stephen here I mean I I yeah, used I, to absolutely hate it I mean I used to think it was just excruciating to listen to and I have developed an appreciation for it but that's largely through taking it to pieces and understanding it I used to be fairly nonplussed by it. I thought I'd developed an appreciation for it by watching your video <laughs> uh, some months ago. And then have, watching it again today, I still hate it, possibly more than ever. <laughs> it's awful. There's, it's not funny. Mm. And I suppose I must have noticed that before. But um, having... I, mean, I can remember certain things that you uncovered in your researches and your script archaeology, but not in any great detail. But... I'm watching again, just vaguely remembering that several different hands, several different comic writerly hands have been across this. Mm. 
and a director who fancied himself as a director and a writer of comedy. I mean, there's a lot of people. Why on earth did it end up like this? Mm. Why on earth did it not get funnier? Why didn't they just gag it up? Why didn't each successive mm. hand take what they had and put a few more gags in? Because there's very little that's comic mm. in any of the dialogue. It makes me wonder wonder if the final hand was somebody who thought that all the humour was going to come from the visuals. But um, I don't know. Mm. Maybe you do. I, I just don't think any of the three contributors are especially funny. <laughs> that um, would explain that's it. That's what it boils down to. Three unfunny people, with a, each with a different unfunny sense of humour. Yeah. Well, Tommy Nation wrote for Hancock. Who threw out what the last person did. I was surprised what? to find him... Yeah. I was, I, was too, I was genuinely surprised to find it came up as being written by him, as the, the credited writer on the... I watched the Loose Cannon Recon, which I guess yeah. is the yeah. best you can do, and... I presume he was the one that was credited on screen. And I was thinking, hang on, this is written by yeah. Terry Nation and Dennis Spooner, and, and Terry Nation's doing You're the comedy assumed. episode? But You assumed it was Dennis Spooner, as as did yes. I. Oh, no, yeah. no, no, Dennis, no Dennis Spooner at all. It's, it's Terry Nation, Donald Tosh, and Douglas Camfield. Now, yeah. okay. Can I, Donald can I Tosh has many fine that, points, but yeah. his comedy rise isn't so. <laughs> <laughs> How do we know? How do we know what Don Tosh is like as a comedy riser? Or are we just... I'm, what, I'm in only... the Feast of Stephen? <laughs> yes. Sorry, in general. Are you talking to just me or general. Giles? I, I thought I assumed Giles had no, a good No, no, I'm, I'm only, I'm I'm only sort of judging by, judging by the somewhat so look, dour the somewhat dour outlook of season three in general. I, my, I start mm. thinking, this is Terry Nation, Dennis Spooner, alternating episodes. Somebody's decided there's going to be a, a comedy one for Christmas. Why on earth did it not fall to Dennis spooner mm. but then i almost i can catch myself remembering that terry nation is apparently that's just what a doctor who fan would think mm. because of yes. course a doctor who fan or a blake seven fan or would or a survivors fan let's face it anybody who's ever seen anything by terry nation would not think that gagging it up was one of his strengths but of course he's allegedly a comedy writer now first question has any of us here seen any any fully fledged comedy like the hancocks that were credited to terry nation no Nope. Uh, I have been told they are not amongst <laughs> the most acclaimed of the Hancock. They, they rank somewhere between the proper stuff by Golden Simpson and the stuff he did in Australia, yeah. which will never be seen mm. again. I imagine it's all rather pedantic, heavy-handed mm. stuff. That's just what I'm guessing. I don't even know what I mean by that, but I, I can, I can feel it. I thought when I, when I watched it myself that it was a bit like. Mrs. Brown's boys in that everyone involved in it earnestly believes that they're making a comedy but nobody watching it can quite understand how they came to that conclusion <laughs> it's so. I mean I think the the key thing is not necessarily to see it as a comedy but as light entertainment the important thing I think is contextualizing it in two ways. Firstly, the quote-unquote comedy, and secondly, the fourth wall breaking, which yeah. happens more than once. Obviously, most notably at the end, but Red Pritchard yeah, the bending being recognised yeah. by the Doctor hmm. from having yeah. been in the Crusade. Yeah. So you got that kind of stuff. And I was doing some research, by which I mean I asked some cleverer people who know more than me, like David <laughs> Brunt and Simon Gurrier. They were talking to me about the other shows at the time that would have been very similar, mm -hmm. such as A Christmas Night with the Stars, which was mm -hmm. 
variety show featuring skits from known programs, mm-hmm. which Terry Nation had written for. He right. wrote a skit for the 1959 episode. David Whittaker actually wrote linking narration for most of the 50s ones as well. Oh, so it's another interesting link there. But these kinds of programs were familiar and fourth wall breaking was commonplace. Mm-hmm. Hancock's 43 Minutes was cited as an example of the <laughs> v- variety format of an existing type of show. And that's essentially what Doctor Who's doing in The Feast of Stephen. It's a variety show. It's the kind of thing you'd later see in the Star Wars Holiday Special, which is just incomprehensible oh, to God, us you keep, now. You, yeah, you keep mm. picking the, the good examples. Hmm. I, I mean, might, might one also bring up something like the comic relief or or um yeah uh, your children, children need, need it, it kind of falls into that but there are plenty of examples of mainstream shows just interrupting their normal programming um till death us do part was one right that did an episode called till closing time us do part in which alf garnett's in the pub and throughout the evening different celebrities come into the pub and right. sing a tune and play on the piano it doesn't break the fourth wall they're just they're just curious customers if you like Mm. and he had jimmy tarbuck and ray barrett and people like that i was pointed to a fascinating coronation street christmas episode where there's some carol singers come to the door uh, knock on the door of uh, one of the characters who gives them a a, a shilling or whatever or a guinea i don't know the currency of those days (laughs) a penny a halfpenny a threepenny bit tuppence anyway they something um, like that and then the carol singers sing a song to the character who closes the door. The carol singers then turn to camera and sing directly into the camera lens. Mm. I thought the payoff was going to be that it's the Beatles. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, they're just kids. If, and they, if only. They all spookily, as one, turn mm. to the camera lens. Okay. Um, there was one <laughs> great uh, example of the Honeymooners where they finish their final scene and instead of rolling credits, they stop, they turn to the camera and they address the camera and say, well, we wouldn't normally break character, but it's a special occasion, so we're going to wish you happy Christmas. And he summons another one of the cast members out. So I found it really interesting to to see this Doctor Who in a, in a contemporary context of weirdness, acceptable mm. weirdness and fourth wall breaking. It doesn't make it any good but it's, um, <laughs> it's less incongruous in the television landscape. The other thing that was pointed out was that, obviously, there's a, it's a Zed Cars parody, but earlier that night there was a Dixon and Doc mm, Green episode, yeah. and those episodes were bookended with pieces to Canva as well. So although not quite the same way, it wasn't breaking character. Oh, yes, yeah. The point is, then, that if we look at this from the perspective of any normal TV viewer of the era, rather than very uptight, <laughs> self-important Doctor Who fans, it would make a lot more sense. Yeah, it wouldn't wouldn't necessarily be better, but it would no. be less. <laughs> it would be less weird. It would be. I mean, that that the first time I saw Hartnell turn to saw sorry, first reconstructed first time I heard Hartnell turn to camera and say the Happy Christmas. It was like an out of body experience. It was the weirdest <laughs> thing I had ever heard. I could not imagine such a thing in any normal situation. But then having seen half a dozen peculiar black and white similar examples today, um, it suddenly doesn't seem so absolutely bonkers. Considering Chibnall's propensity for taking strange 
<laughs> unexplained moments from the past, such as... Um, <laughs> The Morbius Doctors. The Morbius Doctors. I'm surprised he hasn't worked in an explanation for the, <laughs> the fact that Division have had a little um, monitor in the corner yeah. of the TARDIS mm. console room ever since the beginning, and the Doctor's known it was there yeah, and, and talked to them yeah. occasionally. We could have a, had a series of flashbacks of different Doctors uh, winking at the, the screen. <laughs> oh, you could do that. We could do it if you had enough outtakes from from the Tom Baker years onwards. Mm, yeah. You could probably work that. Hmm. Actually, you're a, vis- you're a video editor, Gavin. You do it. Okay. For me, please. Thank you. It it sounds deeply plausible. Well, some people say that it's yeah. Some creative people, the devious minds, have um, tried to work out in universe ways in which it could. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. In terms of the, that's very interesting about the context. And the, but then there's obviously there's stuff that we are missing, and that there's you know going God knows, and there's stuff that we just don't get because of the. And what the hell is the Reg, Reg Pritchard thing about the Rebels movie is Greenhouse? I mean, that, <laughs> that presumably that do, did mean something in the context of people. It must have done, wasn't it? Because if you're just if, and if it's, that's just comedy being conjured out of thin air, then it's not. Then it's too random. Somebody to suggested it might Max. have been David Brunt that there was a contemporary storyline for something like Crossroads where somebody's garden shed was mm-hmm. being vandalised or something like that and that it was a very minor nod to a then contemporary tedious storyline such as if it had been in 1996 mm-hmm. it would have been Derek and his gnomes from Coronation Street yeah. uh, I've also heard it said it's a, a greenhouse, blue house blue box analogy but Ooh. no it's not <laughs> <laughs> mm. yeah yeah. That's the rebels half of that that makes no sense to me. Is it... Revelers, like I, I was wondering whether whether it was yeah exactly whether it might have been like um. It's a shame because one of these that could have been a funny character. It's a nice performance. He's doing his best. Oh, I remember the day war broke out. I said to the wife, I said, wife, I said, what's his name? Uh, um... <laughs> anyway, it's him. I'll come back when I rem- when my brain started working. <laughs> I've written a big finish about him. Mm. <laughs> now I've forgotten what. Oh God. I mean, there's there's him and there's and there's Peter Purvis who's trying. Rob quite Wilson. Hard. Ah yes. Yeah. And there's um, and potentially Jean Marsh as well, though she doesn't get an awful lot to say. It seems like most of the others aren't really trying all that much. Terry Nation wrote a lot of her just beating the hell out of people. I mean, that was a running gag. Mm. She was just beating people yeah. to death at Christmas, which would have been funny, but would have required a lot of choreography and time and planning yeah. and effort. And just like the mm. big finale that. Nation had written, which was a catastrophically huge custard pie fight, which uh, Tosh wrote out. I think there was a lot of cost cutting done to, or well, just make things easier. Hmm. From the audio, Gene Marsh doesn't seem to get into the spirit of it, but on the positive side, Peter Purvis is fantastic. Yet again, yes. he's the funniest thing in an episode. He's one of the funniest things in the Gunfighters, which is full of funny things. Hmm. So. He- Terrific! Wow. Yeah, th- th- there's no actual jokes in it. There's there's people saying lines as if they're funny, but mm. there's no mm. there's not a single thing you can point to and say that's a clever, fun piece of writing. It just relies on people going, "What about you? What about me? Oh yeah, what about you?" And that gets very tiresome after about three seconds. Yeah. 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 I, I smiled for the half a minute when the two policemen were doing that sort of back and forth, mm. Will Hayes sort of. Yeah thing but that's just the actors trying to work it up there's nothing in the dialogue no that's solid so gold look, terry nation original writing that 
there's some things you can figure out probably did work and were probably quite funny on screen, which we're we're robbed of. For instance, the I think all the stuff around the around the TARDIS with the policeman, and obviously when the Doctor pops out and pops back in, and you'd have double taking and yeah, you can. I could sort of mm. conjure that up in my mind's eye that 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 probably yeah that probably worked as being. It, it can surely only be better. Fairly if you can humorous, see it, can't it? Yeah. Mm. Even think, people yeah. who don't follow that, who don't fall for that argument with regard to the Celestial Toymaker Part Three, mm. <laughs> still surely must admit that this would be. So look, remind me, what do we have of the original draft? We've got all of Terry Nation's original draft, and we've wow. got the camera script. You can largely tell what was added to the camera script from rehearsals based on the mini typewriter editions, which legend has it was Douglas Canfield's mini typewriter, but might have been yep. just a mini typewriter. But you can see where large chunks of text have been obliterated or added to. You can see where extra pages have been added in the uh, after the rehearsals mm-hmm. were done. So we know much of what was added in rehearsal, and you can pinpoint to certain bits and say, yes, that, that was dreamt up by the actors and or Camfield after Donald Tosh has done his final rewrite. I find it interesting that right slap bang in the middle of this episode, they have a bit of a chat about the Daleks, <laughs> as if to remind the viewers yeah. about about all the stuff that they could be watching that would probably be you know, rather more entertaining. Well, but do you know what on. really struck me? Having trawled through these uh, 60s Christmas oddities, it felt really like the linking narration chunks of Christmas Night with the Stars, where you would okay. have a skit, and then it would throw back to the studio where they'd go, well, that was a terribly funny outing for the likely lads. So now we go over to Hollywood and see what they're up to. Hmm. And then you would start your Hollywood skit. And it hmm. felt remarkably like the actors standing on the TARDIS set talking about the fact that they'd just been on the Z car set rather than a relevant scene. But yeah, I, I think it also hmm. helped as a sort of refresher to uh, try and convince the audience that this was part of a Dalek story and you you should keep that in mind for next week. So is it correct they did try and get the Z-Cars, some of the Z-Cars mm. cast recruited yeah. for it? Terry Nation wrote it for Z-Cars. They're all named in this draft right. script. Right, okay. And it's, it's all priced up in the production documentation, how much they're going to pay Brian Blessed and all the okay. other people. So it was fully costed and then the producer of Z-Cars vetoed it one of the things I thought was interesting in the original plan the Christmas Day episode was entirely Z cars and the New Year's Day episode was entirely Hollywood ah. or at least mostly Hollywood and a bit of mm. Volcano and Cricket Match and the original plan had been that the Daleks would re-enter the action after the Christmas Day episode so you would have got Daleks on the Hollywood set rampaging around exterminating actors mm. and then Daleks at the Cricket Match mm. and then Daleks mm. at Volcano but they decided to to try to sort of tone the Dalek pursuit down to make it less like the chase. So that's why that at that stage, then Peter Butterworth got contracted and the monk was injected into the latter half of the scripts because it was obviously Spooner's creation. Uh, uh, and how were the Daleks going to throw the custard pies? <laughs> oh, with, with the sucker, I suppose. Yeah. The custard pie fight is in... So, so in the original script outline, it was... Episode 7, Zed Cars Christmas Day. Episode 8, Hollywood. Uh, they then revised that to put both Hollywood and Zed Cars into the Christmas Day. They were initially the other way around, so landed at Hollywood first and then Zed Cars. Uh, 
And then when Terry Nation came to write it, he flipped the order. So it was Zedcast first, wrote it entirely as a Zedcast script. And then when that got passed off to Donald Tosh, at that stage, it was no longer Zedcast. So he took out any references. I think there's character names thrown in there uh, mm. that would have identified it as a Zedcast series. Mm. But yeah, it's decent chunks of Terry Nation's original mm. quote-unquote comedy in there. <laughs> And personally, I find the Zedcar's stuff works, and the was you know at, at least on some level, whereas the Hollywood stuff really doesn't for mm. me. But then the Hollywood stuff really is probably suffers a lot more by the lack of the visuals because yeah. it is so now, it, it's so just f- the wall frenetic. of noise, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Is exactly. any of it pre-filmed? No. Are there any elaborate comedy sequence? No. I think that the immense amount of random noise going on suggests to me that it was actors in the studio not yeah no there's no in in real time i don't think there's uh, i don't think there's any ealing pre-filming for episode seven no the keystone cops such as it is is i mean there's only really a little bit of business as he's going backwards and forwards at the end of the Mm. corridor and then and then a from what I gather, a car crash off-screen based on a sound effect, and then Stephen staggers <laughs> in, presumably with his face all uh, blackened that's up. To match, mm. That's to match the car crash on-screen, then. <laughs> <laughs> ah, that's a no- it's a meta-reference. They put it in deliberately. <laughs> mm. uh, and the other the other one that I've, I've harped on to you guys about in the past is, is the um, Professor Webster, the great question of of uh, what yeah. is going on there. I, um, is it meant to be Hartnell? Did we talk about this he... last time? Oh, we talked about this briefly at the tavern, and I think you were saying that they had... That ex- one of the Richards possibly I had... I, it, had... I said we should have, shouldn't have had this discussion before. <laughs> <laughs> with, with pints in our hands. Yeah, Elvino did flow, and mm. now I'm confused. <laughs> yeah, so somebody, again, might have been David Brunt, worked out who that actor was, found him, mm. found a few tiny things that he'd done. So he's a real person, and contrary to um, myth, it wasn't William Hartnell. So it's not Hartnell walking back onto set in a flat cap. Mm. But one wonders if it's someone in Hartnell's wig and costume, mm. and the, the jo- and that's the joke, is that that's why they were. it was possible to mistake one for the other. Mm. Because otherwise, yes, that makes absolutely no sense whatsoever as a, a, as a joke. No, a running joke. Then again, this is, this is brought to us by the team that bought us Rebels Moving Greenhouses, so, yeah. so maybe we don't need to look for... I mean, it, the, there's stuff going on. I, I was listening, I was trying to listen to the soundtrack without paying too much attention to the reconstructed visuals today. And there's, there's there's things like when the doctor comes into the interview room, there's a tapping noise. And I don't know whether it's the doctor or whether it's the guy behind the desk, but there's some little bit of business going on that is completely lost to time because we mm. don't have the visuals. And then the scene starts. And it it's these little oddities. I'm not saying it would be necessarily funny, But it's fascinating that these moments are lost and that these chaotic scenes in like Nashik's tent where it's just so many voices shouting over one another. The one hopes that with the aid Mm. of the visuals you can get something out of just these nightmarish noises that you just want to get rid of. (laughs) Because there, there is, there's quite clearly stuff going on. There's like three or four overlapping voices of people all doing their own little bit. And... Mm. 
it strikes me that it was potentially nicely rehearsed and you could have interesting choreographed moves as the actors rotate around the set and uh, but all we're left with is this this scream of noise that's deeply frustrating to listen to Hmm. and stuff like the doctor references the holly in the police station so we assume that that formed a part of an establishing shot so William Hartnell looking at or doing something with a piece of holly noticing it even just noticing it and these are the Mm. moments that are a loss to time. You look sceptical, yeah. Paul. I mean, maybe you didn't. Maybe it was just set dressing. But I, <laughs> I just feel like if you're going to have a line of dialogue about, oh, well, that explains the holly. If you haven't seen the holly on screen, it's hmm. it's slightly yep. more peculiar. Check off, Holly. Do we have other things we want to discuss about this? No. Wish I'd I done mean... more research. I've just, I've, I appear to have several episodes of the um, Terror Nation and Hancock sat here on my computer I could have watched one yeah. mm. then I would have I would have had more knowledge and I could have been helpful you could have read all the best jokes we could have been falling about <laughs> okay. laughing I could have, okay, mm. that's true yeah. I was in a certain prop store recently oh. rummaging through its yeah. random boxes of stuff and there was a Tony Hancock script from 1968 that was labelled Australian Broadcasting Corporation or whatever it is I mean, I don't know the situation with any anything other than Doctor Who, so I could tell you if a Doctor mm. Who script was known to exist. Mm. But uh, it just suddenly struck me that maybe... Well, there are a lot of scripts lying around in this prop store. Was well... A prop uh, script? Or... No, it was a real <laughs> script, but I mean, they just acquire stuff huh? to use. You know, if you need a script for your production, then they have a script from a 1968 Tony Hancock that nobody cares about that you can hire mm. to have a, your play within a play or whatever it is. Wow. I mean, they had one floor that was essentially the library, and it had like police files and documents and books, obviously, but it had Victorian ledgers if you needed something for your Dickens play or whatever. They had old negatives and photos and early 20th century slides, whatever you needed for your actors. And uh, yeah, there was a box of stuff, and there was a there was a script in, hmm. and I, so I just was curious as to whether or not this was a lost script or a a known entity or what. I should hmm. find someone at the BFI. Does anyone have a hotline to Dick Fiddy? No, sadly not. The Dick Phone. Uh. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> I... <laughs> On that note, I've just remembered something. Go on. Go on, then. I've remembered I can't remember something. Oh. Can anyone remember what Jan said about Feast of Stephen that he remembered seeing? Oh. I remember we asked him about it, and he remembered the episode, and I can't remember what he said. He was saying that he didn't find it to be that out of the ordinary. At At the time, he wasn't so surprised by it because he didn't have any expectations as a young whippersnapper. Oh. He didn't know it was a twelve-part story, so he didn't. You watch it week to week, anyway, so mm. you wouldn't necessarily be surprised. Mm. He was saying something about the um, mm. the, the snow and the pollution thing. Oh, that's right. He thought that the dialogue about the atmosphere outside the TARDIS was the TARDIS failing to interpret what falling snow was. He thought it was the snow and not the pollution was the result of the poisonous atmosphere readings or mm. something like that. Right. That was, And was that a contemporaneous memory or was yeah. that him? That was yeah. a contemporaneous, and I think it was based on, I'm trying to think where 
where you get something similar. He was saying it was picking up on something that has happened before. Oh, because of Marco Polo. Oh, and the Marco Tardis. Polo? Yes, I think it, and this was his nine-year-old brain or whatever, making connections that possibly weren't there, that the fact that TARDIS broke down last time it was stuck in snow mm. meant that TARDIS viewed snow as pollution or something like that, which neatly ties into the end of the next story that we're talking about. Absolutely. Well, I mean, it's... it's uh... Yeah, it's always it's always good to hear of your uh, your brushes with uh, with fan royalty. Uh, I, I must remember not to be absent from the uh, tavern next time. <laughs> it was a delight. I really enjoyed yeah. chatting to Jan. Yeah, yeah. it's great fun. He's very funny. Don't really know what to expect from people you've only heard about through their uh, their writings. It always amazes me how funny Andrew Pixley is, and Andrew Pixley writes very funny Doctor Who archives, and then all the jokes are taken out because he always exceeds the words li- word limit so if you ever read an andrew pixley doctor archive that's not been chopped down to meet the word limit they're very very funny and that was a tremendous surprise <laughs> <laughs> what do santa's little helpers learn at school the alphabet i mean this is this is even worse <laughs> go on what did santa do when he went speed dating i don't know what did santa do when he went speed dating he pulled a cracker <laughs> crackers or on penguins yeah okay well let, let, let me give you mine then so what did santa say when he stepped into a big puddle don't know what did santa say it must have rained dear oh my gosh <laughs> <laughs> okay what's every elf's favorite type of music i feel like i should know this one yeah you should but i don't go on rap Oh, dear. <laughs> so these jokes are all very well, Richard. But do you know what we really need to do? What's that, Emily? We need to start our Christmas podcast. Hooray! Hello and welcome to If It's Hurting, It's Not Working. Yes, we're back with episode four, which we've specially themed for Christmas. Yeah, so Christmas is all about celebration. So we're going to talk about what we each like to do to celebrate Christmas. But for many of us, Christmas is also a chance to get away from work for a while. It's a great opportunity to reflect on what's important to you and to ensure that when you return to work, you're ready to get the most out of it. But before we get to that... We've got a nice new sparkling web page. Yes, so it's ifhurtnot.work. We want to wish all of our listeners a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year, whatever you are doing or however you choose to celebrate the festive period. So, The Christmas Invasion, written by Russell C. Davis, and I completely forgot who uh, directed it, to be honest. I, should, oh. uh, I, I, I did my research and then I forgot. James something, no. That's right. Is it James Strong? No, maybe uh, it wasn't. It was whoever did uh, Empty Child and Doctor Dances. James Hawes. James Hawes. There we go. Which had the rather larger number of, of, of 9.84 million viewers. I mean, I, I, I don't know why I keep harping on about that, but... Um, 
I guess either figure would you'd kill for now, but at, even at the time that was pretty impressive. It was kind of a, maybe it sort of cemented the fact that Doctor Who was back. Yeah. And on Christmas Day, and I guess I mean none of us really quite knew what to expect of of Doctor Who on Christmas Day in two thousand five. But well, Doctor Who was a new phenomenon in two thousand five anyway. But but what, what were they going to do on Christmas Day? So yeah, I remember being intrigued. And of course, the the other exciting aspect of this one is that it's um, David Tennant's first story. Mm. So um, we've got Christmas. We've got. The, the new show kind of full of vigor, and, and, and we've got uh, a new doctor to um, to introduce. It's it's hard to remember just how huge this was mm. from both a sort of a cultural point of view, a turning point, and also as a fan point of view, because having had the first new series come back and people liked it, and then mm. Doctor Who got recommissioned and got given a Christmas special. It's not like they pitched for it. They got given a Christmas special as an additional episode, not as a, not as sacrificing one of the existing run. Told they were the jewel in the crown of the BBC schedule. And yeah. then it was the second highest rated program after EastEnders on Christmas Day. And it introduced David Tennant. And this was the point when all our uh, not-we friends suddenly started saying how great Doctor Who is. Mm. And that became pretty constant for the next, I don't know, three three years or so. And it was terrific. And I watched it this evening and thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. I mean, I've always liked The Christmas Invasion. I think, I mean, am I wrong in thinking that it's not very highly regarded? I think people are a little bit lukewarm about it. But I've always thought it was terrific fun. A great so. hour yeah. of family TV. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not. I guess it's not got a particularly sci-fi plot to it, has it? But but it doesn't really need it. It, it it's got it's got everything it needs to 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 give you an hour of of entertainment. Mm. Introduces the new Doctor pretty well, and it kind of picks up, I suppose, on Rose's story, which mm. the first series has been about. Yeah, I suppose if people are lukewarm about it, it for me it would probably be because. Maybe compared with later Christmas specials, it's a bit tentative, but dipping its toe in the water of being a, a special. It does feel a bit like a, a standard, in inverted commas, 45-minute story with the extra 15 minutes devoted to the regeneration aspects. I don't mean it literally is because the structurally, um, the Doctor being absent for a long period of me marks it out as different, but it's, um, it doesn't have that epic feel, and the Christmas stuff is a kind of fades away doesn't it after the first first act mm. oh but actually maybe that doesn't make it that distinct from the later later christmas special <laughs> that's a running problem isn't it but i mean i can see I, I think that might be why people don't think you know the fans tend to have this tendency to own to own, fixate upon arc stories and stories that mm. challenge, challenge the mythos or have big villains in and it does in many ways it just feels like a good ordinary episode with a few bells and whistles on it's a it's a romp, but it's, it's perfectly pitched to well, it's perfectly pitched to, to Christmas Day. It's the you know the thing that RCD was always so good at. So they... I th- yeah, indeed. But I, th- I think right. he, for my money, he refines the formula mm. of the Christmas specials as as they go on. Well, with the exception of Voyage of the Damned, but that's a different. I'm trying to think. Well, hang on. So what do we got? So does this then Runaway Bride? Then yeah, is it then Voyage? Yeah. In between three and, and four. End of time. Remember, no, um, next, ne- um, the next Doctor. Oh, yeah. Mm. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I think Moffat then takes the Christmas specials up another notch, doesn't he? But this is where it started. Ex- well, apart from Feast of Stephen. That was where it started, <laughs> and this is where it restarts. Yeah. Doctor Who Christmas special reboot. It was the first show, standalone show, to get a Radio Times cover, I think, since the 80s. Mm. For Christmas Day, for I the Christmas right Radio Times. Yeah, yeah. For, for the Christmas Radio Times. Mm. Mm. Though they didn't put the... Um, yeah, they put they, it was a snow globe with a... Dalek and the scarf and the TARDIS, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, rather oddly, considering it's all structured around denying us meeting the new Doctor for as long as possible, mm-hmm. we had actually seen a, ten minutes of him for <laughs> yes. Children in Need, was it? Mm. A couple of months earlier. Which you might think undercuts that slightly. <laughs> Some people have suggested it creates certain continuity issues. But I... um. I've kind of forgotten it, to be it's honest. It's a long time since I've seen that. Yeah, it's skid. probably best. Yeah. Probably is best for God. I, I know it fairly well. I don't. What do you know off the top of your head? What the continuity issues no, created? They aren't continuity issues. Oh, it's okay. more tonal issues. That when you watch this, you don't get the impression that Rose and Doctor just had a ten-minute conversation, yeah. which w- would have been enough to assuage most of our concerns about whether this is the Doctor or not. Yeah. I mean, of course, he does his best in that, whatever however long it is to reset it at the end, that she's still mm. as unsure as she was at the beginning. But, you know, it's... I'd be curious to know what the viewing figures were for that Children in Need. Just as a thought experiment of what percentage of people who saw Christmas Invasion were familiar with that sketch. Well, like all the Marvel programmes on Disney+, Plus, this this Christmas special, the real thing, had to be written on the assumption that you you hadn't seen... Yeah that little bit which meant that it was never going to be important I th- and i think if people had seen it they probably would have forgotten it by then anyway i mean it, it for, for most people those those uh, children in need things uh you know watched and forgotten on the night really they were it was done later i think wasn't it it well i assume so and not so much, not just done later but not even planned presumably at the, or dreamt of at the time uh, yeah and they were fi- as far as i remember they were filmed independently yeah right Billy Piper and Tennant were both available. And Shannon Sullivan says it got 10.8 million. (laughs) So, um, oh, there you go. So, there are a million people out there. They were a a different 10.8 million. (laughs) They were. Story. Yeah. It was the other half of the population. And it's, I mean, it's a nice, it's a nice pacey start leading up to the, um, to the credits, I think. And and I I was expecting watching it this time that the CGI TARDIS was going to send me mad, but actually it it's, it looks pretty decent. I yeah. mean I I wasn't watching it on a massive screen. Did anyone else remember watching that scene with the with the impressively hefty CGI TARDIS bouncing off the walls, and then in the middle of it of the montage of shots of it bouncing off the walls, there's a quick shot of it <laughs> flying over Jackie yeah. and Mickey's heads. Did anyone remember that they actually? Filmed that with a real prop, practical, yeah. Which oh, lasts for a shot, which lasts about half a second. Well, All insane, I could think of was, what a waste of time! I wouldn't yeah. even realise. <laughs> at what point they realised they waste a hell of a lot of time and money, and probably an yeah. entire shooting day, yeah, for a shot that you could have. Were their reactions mm. that much more realistic because it was a real TARDIS about to bash into the sides of their heads? I, who knows? <laughs> who knows? It's a bit method. It reminds me of one of those modern-day directors who says, I don't trust this CGI, I won't get that. <laughs> Talking of who knows, of course, I've, I've forgotten that we get the, yeah, 
It's one of the few missteps is the um, <laughs> is the frankly awful Doctor Who Jackie Doctor Who line, which just yeah. makes no <laughs> sense at all. Yeah, that's. The I don't mind when they stick it. I don't. Yeah. Mind, I don't Anytime. mind when they say the title sometimes, but um, but that one. Yeah. Was Anytime Russell writes a pre a pre title scene, I always start clenching my buttocks ready for the mm. final line because it's always going to be something like that or Martha saying, oh, I'm, I'm bringing, bringing it back, back to Earth. To Earth. <laughs> or, yeah. or worse. No, uh, that isn't worse. Having said which, I, oh, the other the other lovely thing that I'd, I'd forgotten about is the, um, I do hope that the RTD second coming will begin with a crash soon to Earth in the, um, mm. in the vein of I'd forgotten that we got what started this. Yeah. It gave me proper goosebumps that did. I thought, oh, bloody hell. Yeah. It's terrific. Mm. Yeah. And I was going to say that that um, you know any, any sort of disappointment over the the Jackie Doctor Who line is made up for with the anything else he's got two of. <laughs> oh, she's on top. Oh, she's it's not. Yes, Camille Cordoue can't. Yeah, can do no wrong. We were talking about comedy writers not writing jokes. I mean, Russell T Davis is not said to be a comedy writer, but God, this is funny. I mean, there's some really good gags in this. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Does, does anyone follow him on Instagram? Don't don't lose your train of thought. But he was reminiscing the other day about how he won the best comedy writer at the Comedy Awards in ninety nine or two thousand or something. Oh really? And the entire room of comedy <laughs> writers turned to him and gave him flares to say, "Who That's the hell are you?" Yeah. <laughs> and then Moffat popped up and said, "I was there. I was nice to you." No. <laughs> and he said, "Oh, so you were." Oh, happy. I love yeah. those who on Instagram. No, no, that was yes. it really. Just. But Carry on, you're about to tell us some of the best I jokes. I haven't, no. I, no, you, I you've got a list of all the best jokes. Nice Go on, list. tell us them. Can't, oh. You can't get the staff. Yes. There's, that whole scene is, <laughs> yeah, is, a, is a tour de force <laughs> yes, of yeah. wit and performance. Audiences like it when characters are not stupid and audiences like to not feel stupid. And when you can fill in the gaps without the characters spelling it out to you make you as a member of the audience feel just a little bit smarter and more engaged. And I thought that was a really neat example just before the Doctor comes out of the TARDIS when Rose is connecting the dots. And a lesser writer would have would have just not resisted saying, the Doctor's alive again! And that the lack of mm. hitting the nail on the head, plus the direction, generates mm. a sense of anticipation. And, could... and then the TARDIS doors open and... David Tennant brilliantly underplays it and he just smiles. And the whole thing is beautifully conceived, set up and executed. And it's absolutely wonderful. Mm. Yeah. He brilliantly <laughs> underplays it at the beginning. <laughs> it's a great you know moment what else the, that scene the language is? That turns to English. Sorry, it is. And um, it's a good example of um, you know the companion, the, the bit where the companion is able to show mm. themselves to be the best of humanity actually being justified. Mm. She is actually doing something clever there rather than just... Uh, <laughs> a contrived and even if she doesn't you know repel the invasion successfully she is buying the time needed for the doctor's resurrection to mm. be completed mm. whether she knows it or not you know she's uh, fighting the good fight and it all comes together very nicely what i thought about that scene is and i'm not going to i'm not going to undersell this this observation i thought that's the moment where modern doctor who began because this is the first time we get a doctor as he points out, I've got a mouth on me. This is where doctors start talking 19 to the dozen and being hyperactive. Hmm. And they haven't stopped since then. It was a bit, it was a change, somewhat of a change from the ninth doctor hmm. and from Christopher Eccleston's style of acting. And everyone else seems to have been written 
in one way or another along that same template since doctors that can mm. the doctors always held the room but not always by just literally talking so much that nobody else can get a word in edgeways and and it starts here yeah it's quite reminiscent of, of Tennant's performance in the Casanova thing that came before it it is isn't I mean, it? It's, it's not necessarily how he's played things since then but 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 those two parts seem quite similar had we all were we all familiar how familiar were we all with David Tennant before this I remember specifically watching Casanova because of the casting decision <laughs> and looking yep. for moments where I thought I'd buy him as the doctor and there was one in particular I think it's the famous bit where he turns and says if you could do what I could do, you'd do it too. And I thought, <laughs> yeah. I remember watching Casanova He'll because do. Casanova was on BBC Four first, and then they then they bumped it to they gave it a BBC One repeat or BBC Two repeat later, and that was that was back in the day when BBC Four was relatively niche. And I think it was on it was on at the start of the year. I think so. It was on a few months before, and I I remember watching it just after the first trailers had started running for Doctor Who. Like the the teaser they mm-hmm. ran at New Year or Christmas, and I thought, bloody hell, it's coming back. Okay, who is this Russell T Davis guy? Let's, let's see what he's about, mm-hmm. and that looks quite good. And oh, he's got Matt Lucas in, and then being blown away by that, and then being absolutely convinced, and you know, immediately thinking, well, yeah, surely Tennant's got to be the next Doctor before all the Eccleston mm-hmm. stuff blew up. Have I misremembered the order of that? Did I did I watch Casanova thinking that knowing that Tennant had been cast? I thought we all watched it knowing that it was already the Doctor. Uh, now you're but asking. Then, but are you saying they repeated so, it? John? I th- they they repeated it. They they bumped it up the schedules onto okay. onto one of the main two channels, as it were. I I hmm. thought that we all watched. All us Doctor Who fans went off and watched Casanova, ready to see what David Tennant would be like as Doctor Who. I also re- vaguely remember, and I might be wrong on the timeline of this, that the other thing you could watch to, to get some clues was a drama called Secret Smile on ITV, which was not ah, yes. a good primer because he plays an extremely unpleasant mm. um, uh, sexual predator. <laughs> so I, I do remember being mildly amused at the thought of uh-huh. No, I didn't. I there was also there was also a big finish, wasn't there? But he but he hadn't done very much a big finish at that point. Oh yeah, I he think. was in Fantasmagoria as a bit part. Oh yeah, not was 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 the Unbound thing happen, was, happening by then? Or I can't really he remember. Did, he was quite. Me- it played some memorable characters to be, which is interesting. Like Darth Jamie in um, the one about oh, the, yeah. Ed- the Edinburgh yes. body snatchers. Yeah, taking over the. Oh yes, yeah. the other program in which he made yeah. an impact, and this is what I. Was lucky enough. I saw him in first, and I genuinely thought, "Oh, he should be. He should be Doctor Who." Was Blackpool the? Uh, oh yes. The musical sort of ah, musical yes. um, penance from heaven ripoff with David Morrissey and Sarah Parrish and David Tennant. I'm just reading this off. Um, <laughs> off <laughs> just off the top of your head. <laughs> but I genuinely um, thought. When was I that? remember saying uh, this? It was November 2004. Okay. Mm. Yeah, and I remember watching that. Yes, he played a doer detective with a Scottish mm. accent, not for the last time. And his assistant was a young PC played by the actor Brian Dick. I remember saying to a friend, "Oh, there's there's your new Doctor and companion, David Tennant and and Brian and little Brian Dick by his side." <laughs> and I wasn't trying to be, I wasn't trying to make a joke there, mm. there, Gavin. And my friend said, "Oh, wouldn't that be a good partnership?" But we got half mm. of it. The, yeah. many, many people say the important half. It, it, Tenant, tenant, but no dick. Mm. Yep. 
Yeah. Mm. Well, oh, well, is there anything else he's got? None of <laughs> So, we- Casanova <laughs> started airing on BBC Three, in fact, on 13th of March. Casanova was three parts, and right. they went out 13th, 20th, and 27th okay. of March just before on Doctor BBC Who, Three. So, just before Doctor Who. And then Rose was on the 26th or 20th. Yes, 26th of March. Right. Do you know an unpopular opinion? I, I thought. His character in Blackpool mm. screamed, oh, this man should be the doctor to me. Right. Um, and when I then watched Casanova, I thought, oh, no, that's not quite as much like the doctor mm. as he was in Blackpool. I don't think there's another person in the history of humanity. Okay. I, that's, that's hyperbole. There's not another person who's seen both programs that agrees with me. But um, that's what I thought at the time. I mm. thought he was overdoing it a bit. I remember going to the, I remember going to the tavern after seeing that little 10-minute children need thing and saying to somebody... Mm. I'm not so sure now. I think he's camping up yeah. a bit too much. <laughs> now, of course, of course, I came to love and adore David Tennant as Doctor Who, um, just like we all did. But, in the interest of full disclosure, these are my early opinions. Mm. I thought I'd prefer to see him playing it a bit more down to earth. To be to be honest, I, I mean, I have I have a similar feeling about Tennant that I I, mean, I think the whole I think the whole accent thing was a mistake. I mean, I've mentioned this before on the podcast. I'm sure. I think. I think if they'd gone for his his normal Scottish accent, it would have been better, and it would have been more distinctive, I suppose, than Rose. I mean, I know there's there's this suggestion that he's supposed to be sounding like that because he's with Rose, but I, but I think I would have preferred it the, the other way around. But having said that, I do think also that his performance in this particular one, the last you know ten or fifteen minutes of it, he kind of explodes off the screen, and, and I like that aspect of it. I think it's you know it's perhaps. Other other aspects of of his era when I wish he was a little bit more restrained and a bit more, you know, David Tennant than a bit less Tenth Doctor. Yeah, I think there's still moments throughout his tenure when he's overdoing it, and there are still moments in the Christmas Invasion when he's too close to Richard Hammond for comfort. <laughs> but by and large, I think he's absolutely fantastic. I think he's he's so charismatic. Even mm. when he is overdoing it, he gets mm. away with it. Mm. Oh, yeah. When he mimics the Sycorax, he does his Sycorax voice back to the Sycorax. Mm. And that that is so close to the line of, of being a moment of cringe, but isn't. It's just funny. It's just just works. Mm. It is a good idea to have an actor who's not embarrassed by the comedy, like the one he's replaced. Mm. Yes. Mm. Because... That's not going anywhere in the writing. So you need somebody who's going to go with it rather than pull a massive forced grin mm. and uh, <laughs> pretend he hasn't made a terrible mistake. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just to finish the Casanova tangents, they yep. started the they started the repeat on fourth of April on BBC One. Okay. Which was obviously the other side of the announcement. Of Eccleston Gate, for want of a better Right. I can't remember how, quite how soon they confirmed that Tennant was going to be, but he was in the frame from the moment yeah. we knew Eccleston was going. Everyone yeah. said, well, it's got to, got to be him, so they were capitalising on that. And, of course, yeah. the other thing is that we are talking back in the dark days of, you know, that BBC One was analogue, so that was a lot of people's first chance to see, you know, because unless, unless you had a digibox yeah. bolted onto your telly, as we did back then, you wouldn't have seen BBC Three. Hmm. 
Yeah, I was just trying to think when Freeview came out, but I, I, I'm, I'm afraid I've, I've, I've lost yeah, my point. We had, we'd have had BBC Three through Sky, I presume. Mm. Got a DVD recorder in 2005, yeah. specifically for Doctor Who coming back, ah. and I got HD in 2010, specifically for Matt Smith's first season. Mm. In fact, the Christmas Invasion was the first story they considered shooting in HD. Oh, okay. Uh, and oh, right. they, they pushed it back mm. because, well, for lots of reasons. It's yeah. Money, prop set building and all the logistics. Yeah. I mean, they often cited the 2005 TARDIS not being of high enough build quality to stand yeah. HD inspection. But I don't when really did that buy ever that. Stop anyone? Yeah. <laughs> well, I've got very HD photos of that set and it looks, it looks terrific. Yeah. So... You can understand. I mean, it, it totally changes yeah. the logistical process of building any props and sets, knowing that it has to be HD. The irony, of course, is that what they're talking about is HD at the point of when you're taking the shots. By the time it's broadcast, the whole thing's so horribly soft because they're having to <laughs> compress it over the airwaves. That actually, although yeah. the resolution is much higher, the, you don't get you know you necessarily see all the detail you'd expect mm. out of it. Yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's kind of perfectionism rather than the the reality of, of of what people see. I guess I guess ultimately they had to bear in mind that there'd be Blu-ray releases yeah, I guess, down the I line. Guess. Planet of the Dead was the first one, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, that's an irony, isn't it? I mean, because basically the uh, when when the program originally went out, and the reason why we got missing episodes is that people were were weren't worried about posterity, and then they didn't make it in HD because they were worried about posterity. <laughs> but, but there you go. <laughs> Yeah, so so just looking at that, uh, Freeview launched in 2002. So, you, I mean, you're quite right, uh, Giles. Not everyone would have had a box at that point, mm. uh, but at least you didn't have to have a, a subscription um, to, no. to, um, to one uh, in well, 2005. Yeah, I wouldn't have had anything like that, but yeah. Brass bands. I, I, I used to play in a brass band when I was born. <laughs> <laughs> and you've got, you've got a Santa with a trombone, which was my instrument of choice. So, uh, you know, I mean, it's, uh, and we always used to go out at Christmas. So it, it's got that going for it. I mean, they don't last very long. And, and I, I must say, I never send a jet of um, fire out of my trombone, which, um, mm. you know. Sounds like, is that a euphemism? Uh, <laughs> It is uh, n- n- neither a genuine jet of fire or a uh, euphemistic one. <laughs> uh, there's a euphonium in the brass band, if that's what you're thinking about. Oh, yeah, that's what I meant. Talking of blast from another time, the um, a little time capsule moment that's not going to fit in anywhere else. The little line about Jackie asking asking Mickey to uh, keep a keep a note of how, how many minutes of he was using he was using uh, yeah. using the internet on the phone. Oh yes. yeah. <laughs> Uh, oh. They probably had free serve. Those days, yeah. <laughs> I'll crowbar some uh, some facts in then. Nice performance by Sean Gilder as the lead Sycorax. Sean Gilder, the actor. Not very well known, but there's three things about him. He was in State of Play oh, yeah. before this. Yeah. He was in Poldark quite a lot after mm. this. And my cousin knows him because their children go to the same school. <laughs> so there you go. It's not as Sorry, I haven't got a quarry story for you this no. week, but I do have a cousin... <laughs> you, you, Actor, well, now I'm having uh, to... cross-pollination yeah. story. Well, they, they filmed in Clearwell Caves, which is pretty close to being a quarry. Mm. Oh, Gun. him! Right, I've just yes. Oh God! <laughs> no, sorry, Clearwell no. Caves, him. <laughs> yeah, in with the face. Mm, in with the face, exactly. They pull the same thing with the Sycorax as they later do with the um... Silurians. Yeah, the, the, you know, the, the, there's a there's a mask, and then oh, it's still a mask. <laughs> yeah. 
it's I, I have mixed feelings about that because the the masks the mask designs obviously are more limited from a from a performance point of view but are always more interesting from a production point of view and it's a shame that they can never meet in a middle ground i mean particularly the the silurians i think was a bigger disappointment because the whole point of the silurians is that or the, the original point of the silurians Don't is get that me started. they look like monsters and they behave like people yeah yeah. And but then you give them the face of people, and then they're they're people behaving like people, but they've got green skin and they're a bit evil sometimes. Mm. So yeah, that was deeply frustrating because the Silurian masks were very promising, but the Sycorax masks I really like as well. Mm. But I quite like their sort of face makeup as well. That they they look like you can see their musculature under the. Uh, we only see the one um, hero yes. Sycorax. Yeah, yeah. Does that make them the first of many alien races in New Who where? There's one, the yeah. rest of them keep their masks on and the leader yeah. takes it off. Yeah, I think so. Mm. There's probably a that's a, a name trope for that. There should be a name for that trope. Yeah, let's think of one. Let's not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, he's good. That Sycorax, that's your friend. Hmm. It was yeah, a very well, good. Well, I can dox him. I can tell you which village in Kent he lives <laughs> in. If you, if you think we should go there, shall I do it? And then Richard will have to edit it out. He'll decide where we stand mm. legally on that. Pop his mobile phone number in. People can text him. <laughs> uh, yeah, if I ever do my own convention, I'll it'll be there. Yeah. <laughs> Talking of legal issues, has anyone read uh, any faction paradoxes? Any anyone aware? Because I've ah, seen nast- nasturtiums have been cast about the similarity Not between as much the as I should have cigarettes and faction had... paradox. I believe I did read one of them event because I used to know uh, Lawrence Miles from the, at the tavern. Mm. He was a very nice chap. He was easily annoyed, so I used to constantly t- uh, tell him with glee that I'd never read any of his stuff. <laughs> just when you know, when we were having a good conversation, things mm. were going really well. I'd remind him that I'd never read any of it. Just a... alien bodies. No. Alien bodies. And he said vile bodies, but that's that's evening war. Alien bodies is yeah. I'm not sure. Is that one of his? That that doesn't sound that sounds too dull to be the title of a Doctor Who right. novel. It is one. What is it? Um, I've no idea what you're both talking about. <laughs> Do you, have you heard of the? Right, time-traveling yeah. vo- time voodoo who cult, wrote, as I understand. He it. was, yeah, he invented faction paradox in a series of books, Doctor Who books for the BBC in the early two thousands. Um, for a while, it was a big running thread, and um, he was one of the top names, and mm. and he had acquired some sort of importance in the way the storyline was going, mm. and then the editors of the range decided they didn't like working with him anymore and sort of took that running story and off him and did something else with it. And uh, then he went off and wrote for the Faction Paradox on his own for other people outside how, Doctor Who. But how does a, that tie into the Sycorax? Oh, sorry. Super, there are some superficial resemblances. The blood stuff, is it? The important stuff is not... All the important things about the Faction Paradox living in their 12-day empire uh, outside of time... Uh, have nothing to do with the cigarettes, but the blood magic and the the look, mm. skull faces, um, I believe, are similar. Mm. But Giles, were you going? To, were you going to say anything about that? Uh, not particularly. I was just wondering whether anyone had read any and and had. It's any... called Alien Bodies. Yes, yes. I lost confidence on that because I thought nobody wrote a book with the title Alien Bodies. That's really boring. Mm. It must have been something more interesting than that. Yeah. Like the ancestor cell. <laughs> anyway, this but... is all around the time that they were they were blowing up Gallifrey in a time war in the books and then having to re-engineer things massively in order to bring it back 
so that the, the status quo would be resumed before the TV series came back Indeed. on air, just for Russell T. Hello. Davis to then go through in the time. <laughs> Yeah, so yeah, okay. we when when we did the positive history of Gallifrey all those uh, yes. months ago, Richard, I think we we might have missed out that that particular yes. iteration. Yeah, because I guess uh, yeah, I mean, I I never read those books, any of them. I mean, not 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 just his, but any of them. So uh, I'm I'm kind of I mean, I've heard of one or two of the aspects of it, but I'm I'm mm. yeah. I've got a feeling everything I said about that was slightly wrong and will make me sound like an idiot. I mean, for example, I've just noticed it's the 11-day empire, not the 12-day empire. So I suppose we could pretend that I could pretend... What's a day between uh, friends? I could pretend I was still riffing on getting everything about it wrong with Roy Lawrence, just in case he's listening. Yeah. Let's, let's go with that. Yeah. <laughs> Hello, Lawrence. So, so this, I guess, is the second time, second time we've seen Unit. They were in the, in the first series mm. in, the, in the London... One oh, now in the Tower yes. of London. Were they? I was going to ask yeah, you that World because World War Three, wasn't it? And I think I'm going senile. I because I watched this thinking, good God, you knew it now. I didn't remember Unit coming in this mm. early, and now you're telling me that they were actually in it even earlier than this. Well, there you go. The original appearance of Unit, they were still the United Nations. Right. Yeah. It was the spoof website that was set up. Oh, yeah. right. For Unit, that the real United Nations objected oh, to. So they then became the Unified Intelligence Task Force for Christmas Invasion. Right. And the next 15 years, I think. Yeah. And now they're back. Although... From outer space. Conspiracists suggest (laughs) that uh, there was no conversation with the United Nations and that it might have been a copyright question mark. Oh, a sort of... um, Because the BBC was Hazeman and Lincoln strike Poss- again. Possibly, possibly. And then I. Well, one might. Then, was it? It was. Well, Derek Sherwin? Oh, was it Sherwin? Sherwin. Sherwin. Mm. But he also was. Litigious. Well, well, yeah. He, well, he used to grumble a lot of conventions. Mm. It may have escalated to litigiousness, but. Didn't, didn't, isn't he seeking damages for the invention of the sonic screwdriver or That's something Victor as Pemberton. well? They're, they're all at it. I thought oh, Sherwin. Does Sherwin wanted... think it was him? Well, they yeah, both think. Well, I, they I had fight a each feeling Sherwin <laughs> thought because he. It'll be Sherwin script, versus script Pemberton versus BBC. Yeah. Well, it's it, 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 it's I all immaterial now, Pemberton isn't it? Goes around, Victor Pemberton used to go around saying, grumbling that he had invented it, and he'd forgotten that he didn't even invent right. it. He was so <laughs> wasn't so so angry with the world, but that was Derek Sherwin mm. that was um that was unhappy. I don't. Mm, Victor was very nice with me. Victor Pemberton was. Perhaps he just. I just found it surprising to have, I saw saw Unit and I thought, oh, hang on, I, it was just a jolt to not see Kate Stewart. Yeah. In that context. Well, you got a different leak. There's something new every yeah, time. There was indeed, saw yes. The years, wasn't there? Uh, it's all rather sad. Trying to think of who who's running. That's probably that bloke from um, Line of Duty killing them all off in in between yeah. the stories. It's funny yeah, that they didn't. This is reference to the actor Craig. Uh, Parkinson. Yeah. No, I his bloody name now. Craig Parkinson. Craig yeah. Parkinson. Yeah. As the Grand Serpent yeah, yeah. from the ah, yes, that Flux Extravaganza. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I, I always think of him as uh, the craze. Mm. Yep, that works. Yeah. Because mm. it's funny that they didn't, that Russell didn't establish a a standard, like a, a, a unit family as a connection. Mm. It's one of the odder things. It's probably just because he does killing characters off so yeah. much. He probably would. Mm. 
probably intended every time he invented one that they would be the new leader but then mm. no, they've got to go it didn't really yeah. feel like he ever really you know, wanted them to stay he, he sort of brought them in a few times when they were useful but then kind of bumped mm. them off again it... and of course he was a bit of a flippity gibbet he was forever changing his mind mm. or ch- and changing his plans which leads me on to on. Harriet oh, yes. Jones mm. he's contradicting himself yes, here indeed. having introduced her yes. as a a model politician, yes. the sort of people we all would be proud to be represented by. Yeah. And he follows through on the promise of the uh, of Great Britain's new golden age from the last time we yes. saw her. Mm. And then apparently, if I'm remembering rightly, as he was writing the end of the story, he found her, he found the muse, the character acting of its own accord. Mm. And he found that she was doing these awful things, which he hadn't planned. Mm. I, no, I, he may not have said, that may not have been a reference to Harriet Jones. He used to say that a lot about characters that they would... <laughs> um, say and do things that would surprise him my recollection is that he wanted to include her sort of downfall because of his frustration at the Labour government at the time Right, that would make sense As a Iraq, yeah. I thought that earlier I wonder why I hadn't thought of it before because the first thing I thought all I've ever thought for those 15 years is Margaret Thatcher that it was a reference specifically to the sinking of the General Belgrano at the termination of the Falkland conflict mm. as it was retreating, mm. which we all remember. Yeah. And I thought it was rather unfair for him to um, exercise his, his displeasure with Margaret Thatcher's actions 30 years earlier by pasting them onto mm. a completely different character, which whom we would have no reason to believe would work that way. But you're right. I mean, it's probably is much more likely to be the frustration we all felt with um, the Brave New World M people, things are going to get better, Tony Blair, Quite le- then leading us into the Second Gulf War. The only thing I would say about that theory is that had he not already made yes, his yes. satirical statement with weapons of massive destruction... Yes. Yeah. And in the, the, the dead story, Tony Blair in the cupboard yes. in World War Three. Yes, yeah. and that was in the story yes. that set Harriet Jones Indeed. up as the replacement. Yes. I still think... So for her to then follow the downfall of fictional labor and then also embody it seems a bit contradictory to yeah. me. Yeah. Do you th- do you remember him saying that that was why he took Herod down that path? I have read it, it. I don't remember where I right. read it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean it I'm a little bit concerned certainly watching it this time around it seems a bit misogynistic in the, in a, in in the way that she's the, the downfall happens. But then that's again, that's become a political meme for the ages. I mean, it was going around, it's been going around in the last couple of weeks, yeah, getting yeah. quite heavy circulation on Twitter. But did it pre-exist this story? Because I, it felt so, it was quite a strong, dramatic moment. I just don't mm. particularly think it fits Doctor no. Who. No, never, mind, never mind not fitting Harriet. Yeah. What's her name? Jones. Sorry, why, why is it misogynistic? Jones. Well, because... Don't you think she looks she tired? Looks I, mean, tired. I, mean, I, mean, I mean, doesn't it doesn't it doesn't really work in the same way? You know, if you're going to talk about Boris Johnson, for instance, at the moment, it didn't. It, nobody's really going to care whether he looks tired or not. But somehow, if you're a woman, you have to be to to to, to carry off the fact that you're you know fantastically in charge of everything, and you look incredibly young, and so on and so on. I, I don't know. I mean, it's it's just how, how it hit me. It may not be fair. I don't know. With Johnson, it certainly feels like people have been giving it both barrels. About his appearance and apparent, I suppose that's the apparent physical and mental decline. Advantage of looking like a sort of Frankenstein's homunculus nightmare to yeah, begin indeed. with is that <laughs> your decline yeah. 
Less is obvious. immeasurable. <laughs> yeah. If you look like you've been electrocuted, no one can ever say he hasn't even bothered to do his hair today. <laughs> yeah. It's genius. It's a cunning plan. Anyway, it's a very good moment dramatically, very clever. Mm. I just don't particularly think it feels mm. like Doctor Who, the programme. I don't think it quite suits the character of the Doctor. I don't think it quite works with Harriet Jones. So in almost every sense, I don't really like yeah. it. But, you know, it gets you thinking, makes you feel something, makes you think something. Does a torturous thing come out of thin air here? We've had the torturous, yeah. the, re- the, the reference in the... Um, this is in, um, it's the first time Bad you Wolf. discover it's an yeah. organisation. Right. Yeah. It's been mentioned... Has it? There's a reference to the, yes, the ruins yes. of the Torchwood. It's in Bad other, Wolf. Ru- ruins of the Torchwood, Torchwood oh, Institute geez. is a quiz question with the android in Bad Wolf. Yeah. Okay, good thought about. That's its first reference. Right, right. But yes, this is the first time it's established to be an organisation with alien technology, okay. and then we later meet it in Army of Ghosts, yeah. and then we later discover it's four people in a basement in Cardiff <laughs> doing what the hell they like. Yes, well, I mean, I did. Well, it was when bigger at the time the of this because it was being run by Tracy Ann Oberman out of. When she asked if how yeah, to- Torchwood torch- one and Torchwood mm. two wasn't mm. that? Yeah. That's true. Yeah. When she when somebody asks, um, "Are Torchwood ready yet?" Well, they have just lost a third of their staff. <laughs> firstly, yeah. firstly, my it's brain was think, was thinking, <laughs> "Is that the end of series two? Which 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 disaster at Torchwood are they talking about this time?" But and then if it is just the four of them, what's the third? One and a third of them are, <laughs> are up on the roof. I don't. Know. <laughs> Oh. Yeah. Hey ho. Those moral dilemmas, though, just to harp on about the um, Harriet shooting the retreating spaceship, yeah. they hardly ever work for me in Doctor Who mm. because they always seem to be slightly overplayed. Mm. And also, the when they're translated translated into a science fiction analogy, there's always a bit of a disconnect, which mean which means it's not quite the same situation. Mm. So you just think, well, yeah, but well, no, no, but yeah, that, that doesn't quite work. Because you've got the you've got the thing where these aliens have promised not to yeah. come back. Yeah, they have they have the ability to conquer the planet yeah. relatively easily, but they promised not to come back. We specifically just seen their leader being untrustworthy. Yeah. The Doctor yeah. defeats him in a duel. He promises to I mean, to surrender, and then he comes charging at him. So if they're all as untrustworthy as that one, and she saw yeah. that. Yeah. Also, in a different story. It's, it's the contrivance yes. when I can feel that the writer's is gear is skewing everything a particular way because of what he, where he wants it to end. In a different story, if it hadn't gone down the surrender route, it might have been the Doctor had to press the big red button to blow them up, and he would have done, and we wouldn't have batted an eyelid. We would say, oh yeah, well this week that's the all that's all that was left for the Doctor. Any action recourse he had. Well, like like with the fires of Pompeii, yes, yes. And, and and I guess you know I mean, it's inconsistent pacifism yeah. showing its. Ring's head again. You know, you, you've got Ethelred the Unready, you know, and the Vikings, and the, it, it, which is a, you know, it's often trotted out, you know, s- s- silly old so and so. Didn't he realise they keep coming back for more gold? Mm-hmm. You know, so so it, I don't know. As you say, it, it, it's very far from being clear that, that she's done the wrong thing. Yeah, it's there. a bit. And it's a bit well, bad. I, but but I just happened randomly to be uh, looking at Trial of a Time Lord today, and and I was struck by the end of. Terror the Vervoids and the Doctor saying, "Well, I had to wipe them all out; otherwise, they'd have come back and destroyed Earth." Mm. And they say, "Well, but you still committed genocide." And he was like, "Well, I had to. Mm. I had to. I had to do the genocide, so it's okay. <laughs> right. But it's not okay to blow up a spaceship, right. depending on this week. his yeah, his mood this week and which direction it's traveling." <laughs> yeah. I'm not. 
obviously, <laughs> I'm not saying that I, my mo- personal moral approach to life is to shoot people in the back. I'm not saying kids. That's not what you said to this, me before. This is the message. But you know, I mean, Doctor Who isn't designed to send a moral message out to the children, but it will. It will send messages to them. So you have to be careful, aware of what that message will be. That they divine from your story, which is primarily produced as an action, exciting action adventure serial. Yeah. But that's all very well on an individual level to make the Doctor heroic, never cruel and cowardly, and so on. But it's unlikely that children, any ch- viewers, are ever going to find themselves in a situation where <laughs> an enemy vessel is retreating mm. at speed and they have to carry life and death over it with an extremely large weapon. Mm. So it's not really something you need to worry about what they're going to take from it. I don't know. I don't know. In terms of that inconsistency of the Doctor's character, of course, we also got to get the whole no second chances and that sort of a man yeah. thing. That which isn't and really he, followed then up. Then he proceeds not to be until again. until <laughs> maybe, until maybe the specials when he becomes when he is after yes. all. Yeah. That sort of a man again. I mean, it's not like um, Penelope Wilton turns the screen and says, "Rejoice, rejoice." <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that's my Margaret Thatcher yeah. impression. I no, no, we did. Uh, uh, we did. We did get that. Yeah. Well, you know. Oh, good. I just thought I... Well, it wasn't quite as un, uncanny as Julian Anderson. <laughs> she turned into that red Dalek in the end, didn't she? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Did you fall for that as well? <laughs> that bit on the uh, the ship, the uh, the end of the sword fight, it, it's one of the few bits that I don't get on with from an editing point of view. Mm. It's, uh, it's really messy and logically nonsensical to have a multifunctional button on the exterior that when pressed opens a specific piece of the ledge that the baddie is standing mm. on is just logical nonsense and why it would uh, exist and how the doctor would know it would do that exactly mm. yeah you could just set it up earlier it yeah fairly it's too, simply. yeah it's too big a bump when i'm watching it to think that that couldn't have been smoothed mm. out relatively easily but also the editing process of the Sycorax leader jumping up and the doctor knowing he was there behind him and and the Sycorax not having moved forwards off the trapdoor by the time the button is hit none of that few seconds adds up and then the doctor instantly delivers his punchline Mm. I'm that kind of a man Uh, too quickly Uh, it's it's messy I think the the problem is that it's yeah, as you say, it's not plausible. But because of that, it's then not dramatically satisfying. It's not just that we think, well, that wouldn't happen, mm. because there are lots of things in Doctor Who where you have to sort of yeah. get over the fact that it's not going to happen. But it means it takes some of the sad joy away from watching the program if we don't feel that yeah. um, what we just witnessed was earned. Is it a, tra- is it a trap door? I always had the impression it was part of the wing that folds. You know, part of the stabilizer thing that well folds in. I mean, it's just a piece of the is... platform that he's standing on that just moves out. Yes, yeah. just moves out from <laughs> underfoot. I... Which I always felt was slightly, maybe maybe that's just my head cannon, but I always felt it was slightly more justified than it just being a, a random trapdoor in the. But whatever yeah, it is, get, there's yeah. still a button there's by the button door that I, looks I like a door you. control, and for yes. some reason it activates yeah. the thing that the guy's standing mm. on, and only that thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a two meter square. Mm. What's odd is that wing. he didn't bother to set that up, which you could have done earlier in that scene. But he did yeah. set up the fact that he had a bloody ten. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Chekhov's, <laughs> Chekhov's um, that scene. Yeah, I, but I thought you were going to say he spends forty five minutes setting up that his arm has 
the How ability that? to regrow. No, it was the you Tangerine. You got regeneration. Was, yeah. I mean, I all of these. I was impressed on Tangerine the first yeah. time. The yes. first time we get the, yeah, the dressing gown with the apple in the yeah. pocket, which yeah. is itself a call back to the boyfriend who's been staying from yes. the very first scene. Mm. Yeah. That's, that's some effort he's gone to, to to make sure that doesn't feel like an ass pull. <laughs> I don't know why I always say ass pull. It's one of my favourite ex- <laughs> one of my favourite tropes. I don't want to see anyone doing an ass pull with a tangerine. <laughs> no. It's a, no. Okay. That's a shame. I'll right. <laughs> strike that off the list then for... Have we got, got anything else? Um, I, I mean, uh, we, we can move on to links if you if you sort of. But I, well, I don't want to stop you from. I would like to single out Murray Gold. Oh, yeah. mm. Absolutely working his ass off. He's <laughs> just an extraordinary contributor to Doctor Who at this point, mm. and just working overtime to produce some wonderfully memorable stuff. And I'd completely forgotten about Song for Ten, which I love. I think it's a beautiful little track and it's a lovely to surprise. And the scene with him choosing his clothing is just the right amount of knowingness without over-egging it. I like him looking in the mirror and thinking he looks the part. I think that's a really nice touch. And in there you've got the he got a shirt from Casanova that he picks off the shelf and umpteen other little references. Russell T. Davis originally wanted to use the 1963 version of The Bells of St. Mary's by Bob B. Sox and the Blue Jeans, but they couldn't get the rights to it. Okay. So they commissioned Murray Gold to write a replacement in a similar Phil Spector style. Mm. But I, I think Song for Ten is, is great. Mm. Any any of the umpteen different versions. Rewatching it, I kind of always want the episode to finish on a triumphant note, and it sort of peaks and troughs as you get the triumph, mm. and then you get the Harriet Jones, and then you get the costume scene, and then you get the cut to her on TV where it's all a bit downbeat again at the end as her career falls apart. But then you get the gag with the hand, mm. and it's mm. just for me, it really works. I really really enjoy it, and I I think it's as you said earlier, Giles, it's just perfectly pitched. Yeah. It's not overcomplicated and it <laughs> tells a coherent story and was clearly very, very successful with a mainstream audience. And I think Doctor Who could do with a bit of that. If only Russell T. Davis were going to come back to the show. If only. If only. <laughs> Where could we get a writer of his caliber to take mm. over in 2023? Mm. <laughs> One very odd thing about those last 30 seconds is, is those last 30 seconds. Is it just me, but it appears that the entire thing reaches the final moment of the the crash to credits moment, and then there's 20 seconds of additional dialogue, and the music starts up again. There's a jump in the music. The bit, just the bit where Rose leans over to the doctor and they they start talking about, oh, okay, where should we go, and pointing up pointing up at stars. It's just it. It's always struck me that there's a. There's a there's a jolt there's a little judder there that it reaches a I can't remember what the last line of the the previous last line is but right. it gets a perfect ending and then oh hang on here's twenty seconds more slightly pointless dialogue to possibly just to set up the fact that okay this isn't the end we we want to go out on a bit more of a where are we going next moment it's not a big complaint but it's always just something that struck me as weird I do know that there there is even more trimmed out of that scene. I think um, originally the 10th Doctor reflects on his use of fantastic 
and says that it basically doesn't suit him anymore. Ah, of course, that's a, uh, isn't that the last line? Is they, fantastic. Oh. They wanted to make it more forward-looking mm. rather than backward-looking, yeah. so there was stuff taken out about the Ninth Doctor. Mm. Yeah. Mm. No, exactly, that's it. And it's, yeah, I haven't seen them yet, not with these eyes, and it's going to be fantastic. And then it, and then it's the, the music judders, the music sort of have, having reached a crescendo, restarts slightly differently, and you get the line of the hand and where are we going first? Ah, uh, I don't know. I like the line of the hand where she says it gives me mm. the willies. Uh, has he got two of them? <laughs> <laughs> got to win there. Not because you can't top that, but because <laughs> I, I don't want to. Um. I was just going to talk briefly about links as as we sometimes do. So I mean, can, can we in any way? Oh, I remember the link. Can bit. we in any way link these two together? Oh. I, I've got a couple of kind of trivial things, in there, and then maybe we'll discuss thematically. Both of these shows are written by the most prolific writer of the series up to that point. So, you know, Terry Nation. I think it's it's his thirty odd episode by the time that we're watching the Feast of Stephen. Mm-hmm. Equally, Russell T. Davis has written the majority of series one, and then con- and comes back for this. So yes, they, they've obviously gone on Christmas Day for the guy who's banged out the most scripts in the past <laughs> and can do a job. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, and Russell T. Davis is this, the showrunner, so why wouldn't he do it? You know, it, it's it's a, it's a no. Don't lose confidence. Don't undermine your own point. It was a fantastic <laughs> point, yeah. well made. And. The Doctor wishes his companions a, a happy or merry Christmas in each on each occasion as well. What, what, although in 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 the uh, Christmas invasion, it's pre credits. Yes. Mm-hmm. Neither of them have the Daleks in. I was going to say that nobody much dies. I mean, there are a couple of deaths in the Christmas invasion, but it's not. It sort of looks like it's heading towards mass extinction, and then it it, it pulls back from it. And equally, in the, mm-hmm. un, uncharacteristically for the Daleks' master plan, nobody cops it in the. Um, Feast of Stephen. Because hmm. that's uh, that's Sarah's first flight on the TARDIS, isn't it? That's the first time. What? First time she's in the TARDIS for it to land. Yeah, but mm. I assume so from her reaction. Mm. But it's understated. Yeah, both stories have slightly weird that they're two two separate adventures, as it were, because you've got the, the whole thing with the Santas, the pilot fish, in the first fifteen minutes, and then that's. Oh, now you've reminded me. And then of that's resolved, that's... and they. Damn it! Yeah, so it's the same as. Yes. Sort of you reminded me of something I did want to mention on the Christmas invasion. Yeah. Oh, blast. You can edit this in somewhere yeah. else. Or cut it out and drop it in your virtual bin. <laughs> I, I've always been slightly bemused by the whole pilot fish thing, yeah. so I, I paid attention this time. Yeah. Not, so much, no, not so much who they are. I got the metaphor for them mm. following along in the wake yes. and or presaging mm. the big fish. Got that. Yeah. But... The pilot fish are attracted to Earth by the doc by the scent of the Doctor's regeneration energy. Right. But it's also heavily implied that Sycorax discover Earth when they bump into Guinevere, and that's mm. when they set their course for Earth. Mm. And if the pilot fish and the which is okay if they each have their own separate reasons for coming here, but it's also said that they were part, they're traveling together. The pilot fish are traveling with the Sycorax, mm. so they don't need two separate reasons to be drawn here so that yeah. surely is a slight it knackers the analogy yeah there's something wrong there we've got three four sides on a triangle mm. so um don't think about it now 
Think about the doctor, it in has, spare time the doctor come has back made to... a completely irrelevant deduction about why the robot Santas are there. Something is wrong. Either yeah. the pilot fish aren't travelling with the Sycorax, or the Sycorax, or the pilot fish weren't attracted by the Doctor's regeneration Although the energy. The Sycorax were already on their way because they well, bumped yeah. into the probe we see at that Mars first. on the way to Earth. Yeah. So I guess the Guinevere is a coincidence. That's, that's the one. There's the three facts which, which for which we can only only two of them can be the case, and one of them. Two of them are deductions, and one of them we know to be the, to be true, which is that the Sycorax discover the existence of Earth by finding the probe. No, because they're already in the solar system. So, but also they can't be homing in on the Doctor like the pilot fish are, because the Doctor only arrives at the start of the story, at which point the Sycorax are already hanging around, aren't they? Well, I, I don't. Well, that would make it even. If you're implying that they're already on their way to Earth, that would make it even more ridiculous. I don't think we can add. I think we can just assume they're passing by. And bump into the satellite, and then. Well, the satellite's change, only going change. to Mars, so it's relatively nearby. We can't. Ha- you can't say that the Sycorax are coming to Earth because then that makes, then that means there's a third <laughs> um, justification. Yeah. I'm trying to simplify this, not add. No. They were. They're clearly implied to be just passing by and hadn't spotted Earth. They were in orbit around Mars, investigating signals from the Ice Warriors. Or Sutek. Mm. Or that virusy thing. Yeah. Yeah. Giles, tell us about mm-hmm. tell us about Beagle. Ah, yeah, I was Beagle I was just gonna, me- I was just gonna mention this because obviously yeah, for anyone who doesn't remember Guinevere one is obviously inspired by Beagle Two, which was the British lander that arrived with Mars Express in I can't remember which year, but two thousand three maybe, and crashed. Yeah. Sadly, crashed into the surface of Mars on Christmas Day. I oh, had some, one. I had some friends who who went along to the control room or the the sort of the party to um celebrate, and uh, that was a little bit of a damp squib. Sadly, mm. when they didn't hear anything back. So that's obviously a nod, in terms of the story structure and what we were getting onto. Though it, there's a little bit of a throwaway that um the scientists because they they mentioned when it, when he talks about the blood, he also mm. he, he talks about there being a plaque on there for. To tell aliens about the Earth, so I think you can, yeah. I think you can kind of pick up that the Sycorax arriving is a is a knock-on effect of them bumping into Guinevere and reading his handy set of directions, as well as picking up the fire of blood. Beecher, yes, Beecher, yes, it's fi- yeah. It's fortuitous. Hmm. It's fortuitous that they happen to be already in the solar system. Hmm. They didn't, didn't have very far to come. <laughs> but yes, they were, they were just they were just lurking around Mars for unspecified reasons. Yeah, it does give us a nice covert ice warrior reference from the um, from the unit guy, unless he's talking about the ambassadors of death. <laughs> Who knows? Mm. Anything else? Any other links? Any other thoughts? Very minor structural thought that again doesn't really belong here, but. I haven't mentioned it. We haven't mentioned it anywhere else. A isn't the um, Sycorax ship arrival great moment, with mm-hmm. all the windows blowing out. And B couldn't help but notice watching it on iPlayer that it happens at the exact halfway moment in the story. Once again, you get one of these little structural script turning points mm. where you where the story changes in a fairly major way at that moment. Is that it? I mean, we've been going for I don't know how long, so it's it's, it's perfectly sufficient. 
It's about four years now. <laughs> yes. Okay, well, look, thanks for, for bearing with us for our long and varied discussion of Christmas specials. And if you feel like we've got it all wrong, then you can always contact us via our Twitter or you know some other means, and you know we'll we'll ignore it completely uh, ahead of the next one. But uh, and we sh- we'll be back t- with you early in the new year. We've got one or two ideas about uh, what our next pairings will be. But in the meantime, yeah, well, I mean, we've already wished you a Merry Christmas at the start, but uh, we, we we can do it again. So um, yeah, uh, have a great Christmas, and, and we'll uh, we'll see you soon. Cheers. Merry Christmas, everyone. And a happy new year. God bless us all. <laughs> I haven't read this yet, so I'm just going to be winging it. Let's see how good I can get it on the first. Yeah. <clears throat> oh, no, I have read the first line. Yeah. Mm. Right. <clears throat> have you thought about writing it on scenery? You leave it around, leave it around the place. <laughs> Sorry, Paul. He's doing Should this to the top, darlings. <laughs> I upset him the other day, and now he's going to try and sabotage me in lots of very small microaggressions that you two won't notice. You upset me every day. <sighs> oh, do I want to talk about this or not? Well, give it a go. We can no. just cut it. No, 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 I don't know if I do. I was do a big, complain- if you don't like the sound of it, do a big swear at the end. So <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not going to bother. 